And so after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry and the tempter came. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So it started in a garden with a tree. Not the tree that we should have been focused on, which was the tree of life, the one that we just sang about, this tree that would have caused humanity to flourish and live forever. It was that other tree, the tree that God said not to eat from. Now, we often picture it as an apple tree, but I remember one miniseries that portrayed it as just kind of a nondescript little tree that you had to go looking for. In our minds, which are sinful, of course, we imagine that it was probably the most beautiful and prominent and huge tree in the garden. But that's, you see, what sin has done to us. That we can only imagine that we too would have been attracted to it without even a need for a serpent to come and tempt us to eat from its fruit. But, of course, that tree was our undoing. And it's why the world is in the mess that it's in today. And it's why we have succumbed to sin. That expresses itself in a desire for things that are not God. Now, all of the desires that we have could kind of be bunched into three. And they align themselves perfectly with the temptations that Jesus was faced with in another situation in a wilderness. Money power, and fame. Everything that tempts us is one of those three things. And so those are the things that Satan goes after Jesus with while he's out in the wilderness after fasting. Think about the first temptation. Turn these stones into bread. We usually think of that as just a temptation to alleviate hunger, but it's much, much more than that. It is a temptation for Jesus to use his divine power to satisfy his needs. The immediate need, of course, in this moment is for food. But why not turn these stones into gold bricks? Why not turn them into denarii or talents? Tens of thousands of talents, if you will, enough to supply every need, not just the immediate need for food. This remains a temptation for each and every one of us, and it certainly was for the people of Jesus' time. If only there was a magical lottery ticket that would supply all of our material wants, then everything would be perfect. And so in John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the crowds with five loaves and two fishes that have miraculously been multiplied, they want to seize Jesus and make him king. Theologians often talk about this as the great bread king moment. Jesus was the golden ticket, the one who would be able to give them everything they want. He was the very personification in that sinful, twisted thinking of the people of a desire for wealth, for money, to not have to worry about what's in the bank account anymore. Now, the truth of the matter is that money can give happiness up to a certain point. In fact, psychologists have done studies that have determined, at least in the United States, money up to about $75,000 a year. There's actually a figure. It's 
$75,000 a year, can bring increased happiness. After that, not only does it not increase happiness, it can actually decrease it. Money, you see, is a poor substitute for God. It can't give what we really need. Yes, we do need food. Yes, we do need clothes. And Jesus says the Gentiles are constantly searching after all of those things. But what money cannot give is security. It can't really give peace of mind. And it cannot bring love. Those are just a few examples that came to me off the top of my head of things money cannot truly supply. I just got back yesterday from Haiti, where I spent a week. We dedicated four churches. So this is my fifth worship service of the week. Those ones were a lot longer than this one will be this morning. And I was surrounded by people who are desperately lacking in money that probably could use a Jesus that could turn stones into bread. And yet what they were not lacking was happiness. I saw a lot of smiles and a lot of good humor and a lot of joy, a lot more than I see walking around the streets of an incredibly wealthy, affluent city like Montreal. Because money just cannot buy those things. How often in the Gospels does Jesus warn us about money? Just a few chapters after this one in Matthew, Jesus reminds us that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Satan, having lost out on this one, comes back, with a second temptation. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Now, that might seem a little bit odd until you realize that since Satan tried the money thing and it didn't work, he's going directly to the second temptation we are faced with, which is fame. You might not have thought of it that way, but if you imagine what the crowds would think of a man throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple and suddenly finding himself gliding to the ground. Surely there would have been triumphant applause. Celebrity. This is front page news. A man can fly. Or at least not crash. I'm reminded of the Harry Potter books where Harry Potter's claim to fame was simply that he was the boy who lived. Voldemort, the evil dark lord, couldn't kill him. And that's what made him not wealthy or powerful, but certainly really, really famous. And that's the temptation here for Jesus, to have fame, to do something that would draw the attention of the people of the earth, but not in such a way that it will get him crucified, in a way that will just make him popular. But as the Duke and Duchess of Sussex have learned, fame is often not a blessing, can often be more of a curse. There are three my favorite Chinese blessings, which of course are two-sided, two-edged. May you live in interesting times. May you find what you are looking for. And the last one and the most relevant May you come to the attention of your betters. 
may you become famous. It's not a blessing. It's a curse. And Jesus knows this. But he also knows that just as he was tempted by it, so too will we. And so, again, two more chapters down the pike in Matthew, Jesus says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. That they might be blogged about, that they might be on YouTube, that they might get tons of likes and shares. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Having failed with money, having lost out on tempting Jesus with fame, Satan goes to the last great temptation. All these I will give you, Satan says. All of the rule and kingdoms and authority of the earth, if you will bow down and worship me. Power. Anakin Skywalker, great Jedi Knight, falls to the dark side and becomes the evil Lord Vader out of a desire for power, for the best of intentions saving the life of his wife and unborn child-slash-children. Of course, when he is finally tempted, it is by trying to find where to get this power and that it can only be gotten from the dark side. Satan's power is much the same way, and it mirrors the way we think of power. And it's not the way God does. We think of power as a conduit to Godhead. And yet, as Lord Acton famously said, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We just don't know how to wield power. We don't know how to use it well. Every time we say and think, well, if only I had power, I would use it to better everyone's condition. I would use it for the good of my neighbor. I would use it for my family. And yet, every time it's given it ends up being misused and not applied properly. Power always comes back and bites us in the end, so to speak, at least when we use it. And so the Lord, speaking through the psalmist in Psalm 146, says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans and I might add, his power, perish. Each of these three temptations, the temptation for money, for wealth, the temptation for fame and celebrity, and the temptation for power, all ultimately are one temptation. And it's the same one that Satan used with Eve in the garden at that tree, that very first bad tree. If you eat from this tree, you will become like God. You'll have the wealth of God. You'll have the fame and celebrity of God. You will have the power of divinity at your disposal. And so each of these ones becomes an idol, an alternative 
to God, a replacement for God. If we worship at the throne of money, fame, and power, then we are not worshiping at the foot of the cross. Then we are not coming to Jesus, but another God altogether. So Jesus defeats the temptation for wealth by saying that man does not live by bread and gold bullions and stocks and bonds and bank accounts alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus, of course, is the word of God. We know that from John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He defeats by the word who is himself the word. Money, you see, cannot solve a guilty conscience. But Christ has come to die on a tree to undo the damage that that very first tree did, to give us what we truly need, daily bread and the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do not put the Lord to the test is Jesus' answer to the quest for fame and celebrity. Jesus did not seek fame. It wasn't what he was out to do. Read Mark's gospel, which stuns people. Every time Jesus does a miracle, what does he say? Don't tell anyone. And if there's one question I get asked as a pastor more than any other, it's why? Why would Jesus do that? Doesn't Jesus want everyone to know? Doesn't Jesus want the crowds to hear that he is able to cause the paralyzed to walk and the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the dead to be raised again? But the answer is so obvious. We think that we want the world to know because that will make Jesus famous. And that's the one thing Jesus has not come to do. Not to be famous, but to save Jesus chose you. As we heard in our Bible study this morning, before the foundation of the world, your names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and so you are the kind of famous that really counts. The kind of famous that makes you important in God's eyes, even if you'll never be important in the eyes of the world. And the last temptation, answered so simply, with a reference back to the first commandment, worship the Lord your God. Not money, not celebrity, not power, but the God who is able to give you the thing that really matters, which is salvation in the name of his Son. Jesus had all power. It's not that Jesus couldn't have turned the stones into bread. It's not that Jesus couldn't have leapt off the pinnacle of the temple and landed safely on his own two feet. And it's not that Jesus couldn't have called upon 10,000 legions of his father's angels to defend him from the likes of the Sanhedrin or Pontius Pilate. But Jesus uses power very differently than we would have. He uses power to save you and to save me and not himself. In Luke's gospel, it says that Satan left Jesus until an opportune time, until he could try again. 
And we often think of that next time as being in the Garden of Gethsemane. But I think the last time really was as Jesus was dying on that cross for you and for me. Jesus who has all power, all wealth, and all fame, and has to hear the taunting of the crowds. He saved others. Why doesn't he save himself? Come down from that cross if you are the Son of God. Think of the power it took for Jesus to stay there and die so that you and I would not be separated from God and each other eternally. Rudyard Kipling, one of my famous favorite British poets and writers, once said, Do not pay too much attention to fame, power, or money. Someday you will meet a person who cares for none of these, and then you'll know how poor you are. I think the person Kipling had in mind was Jesus. All of the world is going to run into Jesus on the last day, which for some might come sooner and for some might come later. But all of us who have worshipped at the idol of money or fame or power will realize as we stand before the one who died for us and rose again for us how poor we truly are in the face of that kind of wealth and fame and power, all of which was wielded for you and I. Jesus mounted a tree to undo the damage done by that first tree in the garden. He undid the power of money and fame and power once and for all by dying on a tree for you. Jesus isn't going to check your bank account. He's not going to see how many likes you got on Facebook. And he's not going to check to see how far up the list of the Forbes 500 you got. The Father is simply going to ask, did you throw all of your chips all of your likes, and all of your lists on Jesus. Because he is the one whose money, fame, and power really count. He died for you, and he died for me. Though we might not have to worship at those idols anymore, but simply worship him. In the name of Jesus Christ.